Hello, hello, Chris here with a special episode of the Make It Podcast. This is a panel we did recently at the Knoxville Film Festival, and we just thought it'd be a nice little addition to our normal podcast schedule of interviews and indie talks. Uh, we were joined by the great Ava Lee Stewart, and we were there to promote a new chapter in Knoxville for the women in film and television. Uh, but there's a lot of juicy nuggets in here for independent filmmakers. So do please enjoy. And with that, on to the panel. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Full disclosure, uh, I have a podcast. You have a podcast, right? That's true. So this this is one of those situations that you guys are so familiar with as filmmakers and creatives, which is you leverage everything. <laughs> you use what you have, and and you don't waste opportunities. So figured I'd bring these mics and and, and we did not have a pre-production meeting so no. that's why I didn't know that it wasn't live because we're doing it on the fly which you do a lot of time in film too <laughs> this, is, this, is tr- this is true so uh, I'll start with introductions oh yeah, oh yeah we would absolutely yeah so uh, I'm Chris Barkley I'm the co-founder of Bonsai Creative a uh, Bonsai Creative works in three distinct areas we work in executive producing, advisory producing, and in thought leadership. Uh, for executive producing, we've uh, produced three feature films, uh, Another Version of You, Adult Interference, and All Light Will End, along with several other short films and comedy specials. Uh, we've advised uh, dozens of films and productions. All those films are in distribution, so you can go and watch those today. That would be awesome. Uh, they're all vastly different. You know, one is a rom-com. One is a, uh, I would say, an 80s or 90s style comedy, if you like that. Um, I love that. We don't get enough of that anymore. And then uh, the last one's a psychological thriller. Uh, in the thought leadership space, we'll do panels like this throughout the year. We'll do keynote speeches. And uh, most importantly, we do a five-star podcast named Make It, M-A-K-E-I-T. And we've had uh, Keith McDaniels on that podcast here. And that was the beginning of, of what's been a great partnership so far. So if you love Keith and you love the Knoxville Film Festival, go to the Make It podcast and listen to our interview with Keith. It's, it's really wonderful. But the podcast just started as a passion project for us, um, us shoving a microphone in people's face and asking them, what does it mean to you to, to make it? And that evolved into uh, something really wonderful uh, over the last year and a half that, that has gotten the lion's share of our attention uh, of late. So I hope that's a, a decent introductory of myself. If I left anything out, I'm sure we'll fill it in uh, as the panel continues. 
Lee? Well, I'm, I say Ava Lee. <laughs> I'm Ava Lee Stewart. A lot of people call me Ava Lee or Lee. And I actually uh, started out in the entertainment industry on the creative side. I worked at CNN and Turner Broadcasting, and I did production design. And then I moved into doing more producing and for the online networks at CNN.com. And then I ended up really loving producing our, it was CNN.com's first show. It was a broadband news network. And I was loving doing more television, like the whole thing with the writing, producing and filming part. So I ended up going to film school in London and I made my first film. It was called Keepers of the Gate. And then I went to Los Angeles and I worked in the film industry there for a number of years. And I made, I worked on over 50 films. I started doing in production design for film there because you got to get your street cred when you go work on LA set. So I uh, worked as a production designer and then I ended up uh, working as a producer on a film called State of Control about the humanitarian crisis in Tibet. And then I decided that I wanted to write because I always loved writing when I worked in the news. And so I wrote my first film, which was called South of Southern. And uh, I've also written books and I write poetry and I just, I think I'm just that creative person. And I actually brought some free art today. So you guys have to listen very closely because we're gonna give out prizes at the end. <laughs> this is true and there, this is a prize panel. And we should probably mention while we're paired together and and the reason we're we're paired together is because we are both on the board of women in film and television in nashville you guys were trying to figure it out right <laughs> <laughs> so it chris is a lovely person to support women in film and it's a great organization i've been part of it for a long time and we actually wanted to also bring up uh we, we wanted to help start a knoxville chapter if anyone here Hello, hello, Chris here. This is a moment in the panel in which a young lady in the crowd in attendance is contesting whether or not we should be making a chapter or building a chapter for women in film and television in Knoxville uh, because she feels like she has already started the process and she will not let it go. I repeat, she will not let it go. And now back to the panel. Okay. But do you have your, do you have your nonprofit? Well, we are that too. Okay. Okay. What, what, what's your name? Yeah. Well, well, okay. Well, we were, but we were already starting the Knoxville women in film here too, but we'd love to speak. Well, I guess uh, we could just talk after and get your contact. Okay, great. Did you want to, did you want to speak? No, well, I mean, I, I just, it doesn't, it's, film? it's not about, uh, who's starting what chapter that's actually any sort of like non collaborative women in film efforts is not, it does not work. So the best thing that, uh, to do in terms of networking with women is, you know, it's very important, um, that everyone has common goals and you're trying to accomplish things and you're working together and there's no reason for any sort of, um, you know, 
any sort of like anything other than the goals at hand that you're trying to accomplish. And I do think that it's very important networking. It's probably one of the most important things you can do. And especially with, um, you know, women in the film industry, because, you know, I hate to say it, but it's true. It's, it's been a very male dominated industry. And so you have, um, you know, a lot of kind of resources come available by working together. And it's a smart play. And it's uh, a great way to meet like-minded people. It's a great way to, you know, get in touch with projects you might be interested in. And I think that um, for me, it's, you know, I'll be presented with opportunities that I wasn't even, they weren't even in my kind of wheelhouse of things that I might have been thinking of doing. And someone says, hey, you know, will you come to the Knoxville Film Festival and do a podcast? Sure. You know, but these are because of you know, organizations like Women in Film. It's a great opportunity. Yeah, it is. And I would love to hear more about what inspired you to to approach the chapter. I understand that. That, but but what inspired you to get started? Uh, because that's really one of the main things we wanted to talk about I think early in this panel is just how great women in film and, and television is. We're, we're collaborative. Yeah, we're collaborative. We're, we're not, we want to we're hear not from here you. to start problems. We're <laughs> here to create solutions. <laughs> we, we want to hear from you. Well, we're, we're certainly not questioning uh, your credentials at all. Like we, we, Oh, oh, I thought you were going to mention something about WIFT and why it inspired you. There we go. So that's that's what I'm looking for is is because this this organization, um, you know, I'm a guy on this board, and I'm the only guy on the on the board, only male, and um, it. I, but I grew up with all women, and so. Uh, like Lee said, it became very evident that that um, we need to bolster these types of groups, make them readily available, and then try to leverage the network effect that's possible within organizations like this. There are a lot of organizations that, that are like this um, or that can achieve that. But for women in film, there aren't so many. And so... Uh, whether it be a chapter here or in Nashville, the international, uh, they're all across the country. What we're able to do is say, hey, if you're a female filmmaker, either in film school or out of film school or want to be creative, join, contribute, engage, but then also ask your network to join because it will be so much more valuable if the women around you are also part of it. It's a nonprofit it's not about exchanges of value and money. Uh, it, it's, it's about collaboration on film, and, and film is the ultimate collaborative art. And uh, you, can, you can see this sort of playing out. I, I love uh, Katie Amond and Sarah Zanotti, who are members of uh, the uh, Women in Film and Television in Nashville. They have a feature film that's going to run at NAF uh, in about a week, forgive me, Keith, for mentioning another film festival at your festival, but, um, but it's called Faye and it's the first feature film that stars just one woman from beginning to end. There's only one cast 
uh, uh, member in the entire film. And it's one woman from beginning to end as she sort of loses her mind in a cabin. And the reason uh, I mentioned that is because here's two women, part of the part of the uh, association, part of WIFT. They get together. They end up deciding to live together. And then they have this really innovative idea, like, as an independent filmmaker, how can I create a film with what I've got? I've got one person. I've got one location. Okay, got it. Uh, this woman's going to lose her mind over the next 48 hours all by herself, and we're going to kind of watch her spiral downward. And it made one of the best film festivals in the country, which is what Nashville is now, Nashville Film Festival is now. So that's the power of sort of network effect within an organization like Women in Film and Television. And um, I actually founded the Southeastern International Film Festival, and uh, we do it in Nashville as well um, every year. But we, um, a lot of people will ask me, you know, it's a pandemic, how do I make a film? But that film Chris just described is a film you could make at your house during the pandemic with very little production money. So I feel like that's a, that is independent filmmaking in a nutshell, you know, in terms of the ability to take what you have, the resources available and the situation that you you're in and create something from that. And, you know, sometimes that those types of challenges of not having what you think is enough in terms of equipment or money or whatever, it's what makes your creative effort come together in a way that is really special. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating when you think about it because Katie, who I mentioned earlier, is the director. She shot a couple of films on her iPhone 8. And uh, so she talked to me about like what the secret to doing that is. And uh, unfortunately, it's not, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not something everybody has the heart for. But you basically go to Apple, you buy like uh, 15, 10 or 15 iPhones on a credit card. And then you, because you're going to need all the, the space. Like, right, like you need the hard drive space. So you film everything, then you pull it off, and then you return the, <laughs> you return well, all the iPhones. That's guerrilla filmmaking. <laughs> but, but that's, but, but that's. We're not prescribing anything. Yeah, that's yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying disclaimer. you should do that, but, but that is, that is one way to do it. And these new iPhones. But it does look, speak look to like, it does speak yeah. to like, you the have ingenuity. to, any kind of yeah. filmmaker doing any kind of film, even a big budget, you have to have a lot of gumption to figure out ways to mm -hmm. create solutions. That's all that matters. It may not be the way you thought it was going to be. It may be like 10 left turns and a right, but it's, you know, that's the important thing in the end is figuring out a way to make it finish your work. Yeah. Sheila Andreen, who's the co-founder and CEO of IndieFlix. Uh, we were talking, and uh, she talks about her days in the Wonder Years because she did wardrobe uh, for the Wonder Years is where she kind of cut her teeth in Hollywood before she started IndieFlix and became this sort of juggernaut. She the IndieFlix just exited; they just they oh. just were purchased by Liquid Media um, for I think a multi million dollar deal. But um, she talked about how she didn't draw. And she didn't sew. She didn't know how to do any of that stuff. Uh, so she worked with what she had, and she wasn't afraid. And she had sort of this pattern of doing that. Like uh, she talked about um, a guy who didn't show up for a date. Well, a lot of people would just say, well, I got ghosted. And, and so I'm just going to like leave that where it is. No, she went and found the guy. 
said, hey, we had a date. What's going on? <laughs> That's awesome. And they ended up being partners. That's awesome. <laughs> it ended up being the thing that sparked her entire career was that she had the courage to just say, hey, uh, we had a date here. What happened? I uh, stood me up. And so she was like that. And she was like that on the Wonder Years as well. Uh, just a woman who is, isn't afraid, mm -hmm. uh, which is remarkable for as, as much as she got bullied as, as a kid. But uh, she she's, has been on the record and said, look, I don't even have the skill set, quote unquote, to do the job I did. And I, and I was nominated for an Emmy, but it was because I was there to do the work. I was humble. And I just went out and did it. And so it's a great lesson for indies. It is. And it's, you know, your attitude, your perspective. You know, when I look at a situation, I don't think, oh, we can't do that. I almost never, I don't, I don't really like to use, you know, extremes like never. But I look at a situation, I say, how can we accomplish what we're here to accomplish? Whatever it is. And I think that that's, you know, in any task, whether I was mopping a floor or creating, you know, a network, I feel like it's uh important to really just go for it in the same way. And that's what she did, you know? It is. And it's, 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 it almost sounds cliche. Well, because it's true. people will say it, but when you're actually in that moment, the decision you make to, to go or to leave or whatever is, is, is really tough. It's a really tough decision to know what to do next and to have the courage to, to sort of walk into the fire. Uh, one thing that I, I'd like to do before we get too far into this, Lee, is just know who we're speaking to. It's, it's very odd. It's a very surreal thing to, uh, it never changes. Every panel I do, to sit down and then talk to people and you don't have any idea <laughs> you're talking to. So how, how many, just by show of hands in here, are in film school right now or went to film school? Sweet. Um, how many in here have already made a feature film or a short film? That's incredible. That's incredible. Congratulations, everybody. Almost everyone raised their hand. Yeah, exactly. Uh, how many are kind of working crew, or like are part of, the, uh, part of a film crew? Shout out to you. Can't make it. Can't do it without you. Uh, anybody in the crowd um, of, of a producer? Uh, and then anyone in here, an investor? There we go. Cool. Awesome. 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 We have a very, very diverse. That's amazing. Crowd. Yes, Lovely. you are. Yes. <laughs> Which chapter? Nashville. Nashville. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. We haven't met. No, no, no. She, it's, so, so she's, she's a, a celebrity in Nashville. Oh, okay. She's been in every short film <laughs> that if, if, it, if a short film is being shot, it's going to be good. Uh-oh. She's going to be in it. Yeah. You were in, you had a, I did a short film with Chris Winty called uh, Mr. Johnson's Julius Caesar. And I think you, I think you were in that, right? No, no. I thought, I know you did that. I'm, right on the hill day. I thought you came in and did like a quick one scene where you dropped I think you dropped off a casserole in that in that short. We called you last minute and said, hey, we need somebody to come drop a casserole off at the front door of this guy's house. Hello, hello. Chris here again. Uh, that lady did not drop the casserole off in our short film, Mr. Johnson's Julius Caesar. And the person we're talking about is the one and only Susanna Devereaux. All right, back to the panel. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. It's not what can you do for me. It's like what can I do to help you. Right. And I, and I think, and that's what I love about women in film chapters across the world because I'm part of the New Zealand one as well. It's like what can we do to help each other. Yes. Yeah, and that's a great point because uh, being a nonprofit, um, the connections and the network are all at the state and level. So. Um, even though the individual chapters can be small, they have really long reach. I'm always floored by the people that are brought in. Like, what, we're screening Whitney Houston's documentary? How did we do that? Uh, you know, women in film. Uh, Bob Rains is, is great. He's accessible. Bill Lee is accessible, all because of the positioning of the organization as that nonprofit and and being um, an organization for women in, in film and television. And so you really have resources that would be difficult for you to get on your own, uh, but that you have absolute access to by being a member. So you're spot on about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I actually, I've been in women in film for a long time. I was in the Los Angeles chapter, the Atlanta chapter, and now I'm in the Nashville chapter. So you can switch. It's not like a, it's not like you have a flag for each one and you can't switch. But it was uh, in Atlanta, we had the opportunity to speak to the governor at the beginning of kind of the uh, studios being built there. And it was um, really interesting to, you know, be able to have that kind of voice, you know, in that industry at that time. And in Los Angeles, working with the, um, they have the women in film, but they also have like the Femme Fatale uh, organization that I had a film screen there. And, but they, um, when the pandemic happened, I was finishing a documentary and I needed to finish some licensing for some expensive songs that were really part of the story in the film. And they helped me to raise the money to be able to get my distribution done. So I feel like, a lot of net networking in general in this industry is so valuable in terms of what you can accomplish and and what you can kind of be in the receiving end of just you know unexpected opportunities. But I think that um, it was really you know for me I've always found value in being able to just speak to like-minded people you know at a meeting just be hey you know what are you working on what's going on because creative people we all kind of whatever area you're in we all kind of share the same vein of kind of thinking about projects or different things so it's just nice to be able to kind of see what happens when a bunch of really creative people get in the same room yeah it's almost like an incubator it is it's the incubator concept. it's like a pre-incubator <laughs> just these organizations but now i think it's people like with you joining and everyone, you know, um, being part of it, I think that it's even more opportunity in the technological age because we can all network together and we can actually create even more interesting things than probably before. Yeah, it's a fascinating time because how does networking change during a pandemic? And how do you navigate, what was that? You don't have to wear pants, exactly. <laughs> Although you should, but the, the <laughs> <laughs> that one guy that you got have, caught. You, yeah. you have no idea how wide your lens is. So just, you know, careful. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, how do you, how do you change during a pandemic? When will it end? When will we go back to 
to doing things as we used to? Will there be a desire to do that? Um, my experience so far has been that with, let's just call it Zoom networking. With Zoom networking, you can go really wide, but you can't go as deep. Um, so for example, if, if, if I wanted to get to know this gentleman better, uh, after this panel, me and I could take him out for a beer or a cocktail or lunch, and we could really get to know each other, and our chances of working together uh, increase exponentially. And that was one of the best parts about going to a festival was that you know you you run into some executives, you meet some people, some creatives, some auteurs, and you take them out and get them drunk. And that is the best way to just start getting that honesty rolling, and and then and then figure out if you guys are compatible. But via Zoom, you don't really get that kind of depth because everybody has a voice. It's almost like being on Twitter, uh, especially if the whole group's engaged. So it's like messages are pinging, people are jumping in. Um, and so you can't really go deep, but uh, you can go wide. And that has its own different kind of value that we have to, we have to learn to leverage. So for example, uh, if you have the courage to speak up, you could say, hey, everybody, put your uh, contact in the in the chat. And you just got 30 emails and phone numbers in five minutes, which would have taken you three weeks in person, maybe. And probably some dealing with some mild rejection uh, to, to get to that point. But yeah, it, on, on Zoom, you can do things like that. Or you can you could just... You can introduce yourself on Zoom, and now you've like introduced yourself at scale. It's it's depending on the size of the room that can be really powerful. Whereas at a festival face to face, I've got to introduce you one by one myself, one one person at a time. Hope you remember my name. Hope you remember my face. You know, you're going to take my business card, and uh, you know you're going to throw it in the trash can. Like. Like what, like, like what is the power of it if I can't go deep with you? So, so there are ups, upsides and I, I think downsides of, of networking, but. Well, and it's about discernment too. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like, you know, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. I direct, write and produce, and you are, have a different aspect of the industry. So my person that I might really connect with in terms of what we could do together is different. So, mm -hmm. you know, but it, it is nice to be able, you know, especially with organizations that you join, um, you are able to, everyone's there to network. So they're very, you know, they're very accessible in terms of if you know, someone does something, you can contact them. And, and as you have the shared, you have the shared, uh, you know, organizations. So it's like you can really have a lot of opportunities through that type of networking for sure. Well, where I was going to go with it is that when you're in an organization like WIFT, mm -hmm. they're going to always be setting up. Oh yeah. Constantly. Constant events for you to be networking. We're missing at. the Emmys party right now. Yeah. We're come missing the you. Emmys party. Right. There's an <laughs> Emmys party to just for example, it's a, it's a great point because so most of us are in a situation where it's like, well, am I going to network via Zoom? Am I going to go somewhere face to face and try to go deep? But when you're part of WIFT, you're getting these at bats all the time. Like we're going to have this party, this party, this party, uh, this gathering. Uh, I think Linda has something. Linda's the president of our chapter, something called, I guess, tea or snacks or 
lunch with the president or something like that. So yeah, and actually, she's inviting the governor of Tennessee to one of those next month. So that's true because they're talking about doing film credits here, and she wanted to be part of that conversation. Which, you know, who doesn't? Who doesn't exactly? <laughs> so you get this opportunity to um, have these scheduled in-person networking events that just. It's immeasurable. You can never tell what an interaction uh, is going to do for your life and how it's going to propel your life. You just you just have no idea that the individual that got me into this business, um, some of you will know him right off the bat and others just won't. But that's OK. Uh, his name is Dick Gregory. And he was the first black comedian on a white stage. He was helped out by Hugh Hefner. And I met him while I was in college in 2000. And to be honest, I was told that this was an important person, but I didn't know who he was. I was a kid. I had no idea that Dick Gregory went to jail with Martin Luther King Jr. I had no idea that he ran for president in 1968. I had, in one Pennsylvania. I had no idea that this person had such, you know, this rich history. He spoke after the shootings and massacre at Kent University or Kent State University. Wow. So I didn't know he had that background. And, um, you know, fast forward 14 years and he's getting a star on the Walk of Fame in the twilight of his life. And who does he call up? Me and my partner Nick to come and help him get his star on the Walk of Fame which launched just into the film business because our business was going to be publishing and tech because um, our, our degrees were in that. So mm -hmm. I have a journalism degree and marketing degree, a double major, and my partner, my business partner, Nick, is a CS major. So uh, we, but we love story all along, right? So you just don't know how these networking things are gonna work if you, if you have the patience to let things play out because um, everybody's running their own race. It's right. so true. I was thinking about how I I was doing a documentary. It, it's called Finster. It's about Howard Finster, a folk artist in North Georgia. And I ended up interviewing Amy Ray from the Indigo Girls. And her wife was pregnant. And she's the, she was the film teacher at the University of North Georgia. And randomly, because of you know the random kind of things that happen, uh, they asked me if I would teach there for a semester while she was on maternity leave. Because I happened to be in town at that time. And it's funny how, you know, things like that happen all the time with networking and working, you know, you just get these interesting opportunities. But I, I remember, um, they, I taught, uh, four classes in one day because of, they didn't have anyone and they wanted me to do it. So on Wednesday from, you know, like noon until 7 PM, I would teach film history, film production, screenwriting and advanced screenwriting. And it was funny because when I taught screenwriting, when you were talking about story, the I said, "Okay, we're gonna have a we're gonna do like a short screenplay." And uh, you know, they came back with the the first ones, and probably seventy percent of them did not have an ending to their story. <laughs> and I was like, "Wow, we're gonna start here." But it was um, I. What I realized is I continue to be in the creative fields since I was you know very young. I, that everything's a story. And when I talk to even just musicians I've worked with, with the film festival, and they're talking about writing songs, a song is a story and story has a beginning, middle and end. And it's however you want to tell it, but it's really, you know, in terms of a marketing campaign, it's a story. And the reason why humans kind of 
are reached by it is because you connect to it because it has kind of a message and that's that's our like communication are the core of us so it's really interesting to me how you know in the creative fields we have a lot of power and and today more than ever with all the platforms available you know and all the different content that people need in different like I remember teaching that class it was probably 10 years ago and um, the kid, I was talking about Vine videos and I was like, you'll never know. You should really learn how to do short stories because who knows where this is going to go. And look where we are today, that there's a whole network that just was created by Disney just to make short form content that's like less than two minutes, I think, or maybe it was five minutes, but it's very short. And then when you look at the way people use phones and different things, it changes all the time. So it's like we have so many opportunities now for so many different things. It's probably the best time in history to be in this industry, I think. But it's all about kind of being an entrepreneur, kind of like looking at it and saying, okay, how do I get in? What am I doing? What do I want to do? What's my passion? That's exactly right. Yeah. It, it's an exciting time to be a content creator. There's just no doubt about it. And um, I know we don't view social media platforms as streaming platforms, but that's exactly what they are. And uh, at any moment, you know, they're sitting on such cash hoards. Any any moment that, that they decided to go into those markets, they could go in to those markets and be very, very successful at, at, at what they want to accomplish. Um, we've never had more deal flow than we have right now. So we get prospectus and scripts sent to us a lot. Now, unfortunately, uh, Pareto's law still applies. Uh, 80% of those scripts really need work. And, but I, I had to get a partner that was cynical because I'm too optimistic. And as a writer myself and someone who's played uh, piano and, and, and produced music and done that stuff, I have a really soft heart for anyone who's creating anything because I know the struggle it takes to reach a professional benchmark. It is so difficult. And so that's why I always, always shudder when I'll go to like a review site and read a movie review or even a music review. And we take that for granted. Those will say, oh, this is a bad, bad song or album. It's like, you listen to it, it's sonically perfect. No notes are missed singing. The musicians are the best in the world. How can you review something that's terrible? Right? We should probably say that didn't taste good. We probably shouldn't say that's a bad song or a bad album. But as an investor, you get into some well, and bad places that's when, the you, hard thing. when you're that's that the optimistic. Hard thing is art yeah. is subjective. You know, one yeah. thing that I might love, somebody else doesn't love. But as a creator, you know, you have to have thick skin and just say, okay, you don't like it. I, you know, I made it, whatever. I made it because I was passionate about it. I wanted mm -hmm. to tell this story. That's why. And as an investor, it's a totally different thing because you're looking at it like, how can I monetize this story, which mm -hmm. is like a hard thing in the creative field because art and creation is so kind of organic. And then you have like, it's a business too. So you have to, as a creator, I think, you know, I've done a lot of projects that I knew weren't going anywhere just because I wanted to do it. You know, it was a message I wanted to tell or whatever it was. But at the same time, you know, I've worked on projects that were you know, meant for a commercial distribution and you know what parameters, once you're to the level of creating professional content, you know what parameters yes. you have to be in to be able to do certain things. So you have to just kind of decide, you know, what, what project is it and what am I doing here? And so, you know, sometimes I know like I can't have a, 
you know, crazy kind of design that would cost so much. Like I think, uh, like I was working on a film in Los Angeles and uh, it was a Tony Scott film and he, uh, it was like $80,000 for one roof scene because of the way he wanted to develop the film. And it's like, they would never do that now. But I mean, that's a lot of money to spend for one scene of one movie. You know, and it's it's like uh, as a filmmaker, you know, you have to decide like, okay, how can I tell this story for this amount? Because you have a budget, and it's just and it's the same like when you prepare the material because you're on the pitching side. Mm -hmm. You know, like when people prepare the material, a lot of times, even with the film festival, when they submit, it's not it's very much like a creative person submitting with like not a lot of thought to the business side of it. But the business side is also important. So if you if you're a creative person that doesn't like to do that, you need to find a partner that's good at that or be able to kind of like figure out a way to present in that way. Yeah. I think it's, it's, I think it's very, I think it's more than just important also. Like it's, <laughs> it's like, it might be more than it's, just, yeah, it's like the, it's like, it the, might be the reason why you're successful or not. <laughs> right. It's the whole thing. Right. Cause we would say if, if you make a film, your first, if your feature film, uh, doesn't do well the first time you might not get a second feature film. So that's kind of how it's a sad reality. Critical it's, it is. It's just like yeah. when a journalist makes a mistake, their career is over. It's the same Unless with the film in a way. And then right. <laughs> well, I guess it's the same sense yeah. of creative people. You know, if you have a bunch of flops in a row, no one wants to give you money. So. Right. That, that's exactly right. It's the reason. So it's all, it's, it's a, it's a tug of war between what the creative wants and what the bank wants. Yeah. And that's why Paramount has just decided they're doing IP only going forward. It's a really big blow to most creatives. Like, wow, really this entire slates. studio is yeah. only going to do things that already exist in the world. It's almost like you would rather go and be a, an author and hope to get optioned than to be a screenwriter with something that's spec or new. So I think that's discouraging personally. I, I, I don't. Well, I mean, it's, a le but, but it's it, less but, of opportunities. Right. But it is a, a risk mitigation tool. But where I was going with the previous comment is, is to, to get, um, to take advantage of, of the opportunities that exist today because of what we were talking about. You really have to have strong answers to your why questions um, versus. So, so let me just break that down. Uh, so four whys. Why is the most powerful question in the world, by the way? And if you ask somebody why three to five times, you'll get to the heart of, of who they are as a person. It didn't take a lot. Three to five tops. You'll get to their soul, their intellect, their intentions, everything. So we say, well, why you? So why, why would you make this film? Now, we get answers like, well, I wrote this screenplay in film school and uh, it did really well in a contest. It's been my passion project and I'll do anything to, you know, to get it made. I just want to see this get made. And you might say, dang, that's a pretty good answer. I mean, it's like, like, cause I would view a filmmaker as a founder of a, of a startup that I would invest in. Right. Or want to work with. And it, it turns out that that's, that's okay, but it's not, uh, a great why. Um, a better why would be, you know, I want to make this film because uh, my mom is a cancer survivor and uh, I watched day by day her go through the journeys and trials of trying to overcome cancer in an American healthcare system that, uh, let's say, doesn't have perfect equity. And I think the world needs to learn the lessons from that and hear that story. Whoa. Now that's a why you. 
because only you can make it. And so that's what it, what money is looking for. Money is looking for a filmmaker that is singular, that like, like they're the only person that can make the film. And if they get replaced and the film just doesn't happen, it just can't be made. And then the second why is why now is, is, you know, this, this comes back to, there's a little journalism in this, uh, in terms of like the, the rules of what makes something newsworthy, but what makes something story worthy and purchasable by a streamer like Hulu or Netflix or, uh, or a distribution company is why now is the story, um, uh, aligned with the current zeitgeist. Uh, so right now you're going to get a lot of screenplays that are political. You're going to get a lot of screenplays about race. You're going to get documentaries about that. You're going to get documentaries about division and things like that. Some of those things are so on the nose that it's a little annoying and, and it's, and it's kind of like oversaturated, but some of them need to be told and need to be told over and over and over again. Cause they, they haven't been told in the right way yet. And, and from a perspective that's unique and new. So have a really good answer to why now, which I think is easier than why you. And then why this film, meaning could you do this in a different medium? Um, there, is, there is this idea that if you make a short film, you just mentioned, Lee, that like you made it because you wanted to make it, which I love. That's like the artist way. And it's like it's the, the, the hard way sometimes, but sometimes it's just yeah, the way. It's the it's the way you, you have to do it. But but it's like sometimes you have to recognize this is a feature film or is this a short film or is this a series that you're trying to make into a feature film? Like what is this this thing uh, that that you have? So so why why a film is is, is an important question because there is a myth uh, that it that oh you can't um, make a short and be profitable. Well, there's an order of operations there. If you're trying to distribute a short film that you made, then that's probably true. Um, there's an old saying that every film makes its money back. The question is, will it do it in two years or 200? <laughs> and generally speaking, it's a bad investment if it takes longer than two years to make your money back. But, uh, but if you will get, you will get you know, $15 in the mail for the rest of your life, potentially. So there's that. Um, Instead, why not do what Emil Giardo did and enter your short in a contest and then get placed on HBO? So now his short film is on a major streaming platform, uh, basically through Warner Brothers, and and everybody can see it. It's it's a powerful short film, and now he's in this group of Hispanic directors and filmmakers that's going to get put on the way that like a Lulu Wayne got put on when she did a short film and took it to AFM mm -hmm. and got the farewell. So if you, if you, if you're doing a short film, for example, the question is what market should it be in? We're all trying to push to the same market. That's not smart all the time. Like you're trying to like get some monet. You're trying to like, Oh, I'll put it on Vimeo Pro and then uh, they'll rent it for $1.99 and then we'll make our money back. That might not be the profits, the market you need to put your short in to be profitable with your short. And so everything is that way. So why this film? And then the final thing, which is if you're asking for money for anybody, uh, is why me? Um, the truth about investment is, is uh, I know you as a filmmaker want to make your film more than anything in the world. And so my check isn't special. It just isn't special. If Lee comes up and says, I'll fund that you'll take her money and you'll leave me in the dust and my deal flow will be done. 
Um, so I like to know that I'm special. Maybe it's an ego thing, but I want to know that you came to me because I have a particular type of expertise on set, uh, that I'm not an ivory tower EP. So I'm not sitting back waiting for you to, to make my lunch for me. Uh, that uh, I can buy you time when you're out of time in a particular location, that I can seed additional funding for contingencies in post, uh, that, um, that I'm there for a reason, that I'm there for reputation, uh, that you researched me and know what kind of films I like to make and that we like to make. Uh, those four whys will get your film funded if they're great. They really will. Even if you get a couple of no's, somebody's going to say yes, because those are, if you have strong answer to those whys, that's, that's the key. It's really funny when you were explaining that, I was thinking about the last film project that I did and it was a documentary about Howard Finster. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. So the whole project started out as a favor to a friend of mine who's an architect that volunteers at the Georgia Trust that is, um, they have a preservation program that they pick uh, seven places that are called places in peril that are about to maybe be destroyed for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And um, they said, hey, Lee, will you come to Paradise Garden, which is Howard Finster's life's work, and see it? And will you try to help us do a video so they can get a grant from Art Place for over a million dollars and fix it? And I said, okay, I'll go. And I went there and it was completely overgrown with ivy. It was very, very, very um, dilapidated. And I was like standing there looking at it. And Howard Finster's, he used recycled art and he was a... Uh, um, he was an outsider artist, so he used kind of like, a, you know, equipment beds. Like, it was just looked like almost like a junkyard. And I was just standing there, and um, and I was looking. There's a toilet sitting on the ground in the stream. And he had dug the whole property out of a swamp and created canals. So there are all these different streams. And I was standing there looking at it, and and the guy who was the, um, he was the director of the garden and the renovation, and he said, uh, he was talking about Marcel Duchamp in, in the 1800s in France, he brought a toilet into the, um, I, I can't remember the name of the school, but he, um, he that, that became a whole form of art. And so Howard Finster's messages were still being communicated, even though it was, you know, in disrepair. And I just thought, wow, this place, I, and so I did the short film. We ended up getting the grant. They got more money than that. And it ended up that I was able to make the documentary. So in Howard Finster, it's, it's ironic, too, that about the pandemic happening because the message that kind of came through from the interviews, because when you make a documentary about someone who's passed away with people today, you kind of you can write kind of an outline to the story, but you don't know exactly what you're going to get. But by the end of the edit, it was a lot about um, how art can have the power to change the world and through love and, you know, recycling and all these different things. And, um, that was because it was different than the messages you're talking about people kind of going on the nose. I I'm currently in like a bidding war situation with my documentaries. So it's like, you know, random, but that was all because of me wanting to help, you know, save an artist's legacy for my friend. And then it turns into, you know, and I, I really love the film because it's a really positive message, but it's, it's just like ironic the way it all comes together sometimes. But I think it's about like, once I stood there at that place, I was like, this is an amazing story. I knew it was an amazing story. And then it became even more interesting when I found out more, but it's all about like being connected to it. Like what you said, you have to have somebody that really is the one to do it. Yeah. It's almost like if, if the film getting made is more about you 
than about the story, it's it's a bad precedent. Whereas if right. you're making it about someone else, or there's, it's it's the uh, the why is about something that uh, is happening in culture. Well, uh, I'm not going to say it's who, huge. but I had a foundation that's named after a family asked me to make a film about the family, and I come on, tell us. I who. wouldn't do it because it's so <laughs> it's so. I mean, you're asking, you're going to pay me a lot of money to make a film about you, but I was like, I can't. That's no. I, but other people would be glad to take the money, you know, it yeah. just at that time I just didn't, I wasn't connected to it. Yeah. There are people who, who want to have you write a love, um, letter to, to themselves. Uh, I think there was uh, recently a small controversy with, uh, Alanis Morissette, for example, who was not very happy with the documentary or play that was made about her. And so I don't know she, about the place so you have to tell everybody. She, well, she just has to be objective and realize that she's not perfect. <laughs> and, and as a storyteller, wh where's, where's the tension? Where's the disagreement? Where's the, uh, there's no there, there, if everything is roses. No, I mean, that's, you know? I did that documentary about, uh, the human Especially in a doc. Well, yeah. yeah, for sure. But I did. The, it was about the humanitarian crisis in Tibet, and the Chinese government didn't like our film. So of course they did. Uh, they destroyed my laptop. Uh, it was really dangerous, actually. But mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, you just have to be when you put your work out there. It doesn't matter what people say as much as that. You just have to be ready for whatever is going to come back. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it's going to come. I mean, once you get to a certain level, there's always going to be somebody that likes your work, doesn't like your work. And then, in my case, a government that wants to shut your work down. I'll give you and the rest of the pan, uh, audience here some advice. If you're ever making a film about Tibet <laughs> <laughs> or anywhere that has an aggressive communist dictatorship type government, download an app called GPG Mail. It's well, that free. didn't exist at the time. It was 10 years ago. Well, it did exist 10 years ago, oh, but did it? people didn't know about it. Okay. But, sure would have liked GPG to have that. Mail and it encrypts all your messages. No one can decrypt this. Uh, it's just like a technical improbability, right? And now well, you can send messages across to people and maybe they don't know. You, you're making a needed. film, so you know maybe you would have got well, called they, anyway. But the but. directors were in China yeah. and... Uh, I started getting kind of, I knew my, the, my network got hacked in, uh, in America mm -hmm. and I was in Denver at the time and, uh, they were in like a province near, um, where, t where like Tibet is. And they ended up the Chinese government when they were out, took all their computers, cloned them, cloned all their phones, cloned their iPods. And they knew everything within uh. 24 hours of them being there. And they got all the contacts and all those things and traced it all back to America and us. And so, I mean, it really was no joke, but, and actually by the end of it, we had to airlift one of the directors out that he was poisoned with strychnine in China. And so, um, you know, oh, it was, but it was a really great film. It's very compelling because the humanitarian crisis is very serious there and the Tibetans don't have a voice. And so we gave a voice to the disenfranchised and it helped save lives. We helped to get people um, asylum here because of it. So I feel like it was worth it, of course, because we saved lives. But at the same time, it's a story that I feel like needs to be told and it has longevity because it's a time in history. But it's, you know, I would I don't know what I was thinking when I mean, I, I was thinking about the Tibetans and the story and the disenfranchised because as a former journalist, you know, but at the same time, like I love making a, a film about love and art next because that's a hard it's actually hard to make a film that's really hard hitting like that. 
Yeah, and it's great perspective for for us that live in, in this wonderful free society that I think at times we can take for granted, not understand. Oh, we're so lucky. Not, not understand it deeply. There's a there's a lawyer that works with filmmakers in Chattanooga named Kevin Christopher, and I he, think I've met him. Yeah, actually. and he's like only one of I think six B Corps in the state, uh, and he has spent a lot of time in China. And what, what we take for granted and don't understand about their situation is, is like, so you look at the Uyghur situation, for example, the citizenry has no idea that's going on. So we don't think about that. If you live in China, you have no idea that that's happening because you don't get that information. It is blocked from you. You have no clue it's going on. So we look at it and judge it, say, how could you stand by and like not have a revolution? What revolution? <laughs> like what's everything's because the Chinese government's philosophy is based on harmony. But if you take that philosophy all the way to the bottom or to the top, however you want to view it, what are the implications of perfect, trying to create perfect harmony? Uh, whereas um, our society is about um, uh, disharmony. And, and how does that work if you have disharmony, sort of people singing their own song? And, and what are the implications of that? There is no perfect ism. So it's all about philosophy when you get to the to the very top. Uh, we are 50 minutes into this thing, and I thought it'd be cool to see if people had questions for us. Whoa, that was fast. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. You want to take well, this? I, mean, I, I think you could yeah. start online, you know, like with my film festival, for instance, we have like a networking group online and a bunch of different artists and filmmakers. We do, it's art, film and music together. But I feel like you could start with that. And uh, maybe, you know, if it's like anxiety for in person, you know, you could go with the zooms and the competitor to zoom <laughs> and the, the, what is it? There's so many. And uh, anyway, uh, you could just do kind of, that could be maybe the next baby step and then keep going from there. Maybe one person face to face. I mean, you build up to it. I, you know, I don't think that networking is necessarily, you know, comes organically to everybody. So, I mean, it's kind of like you learn how to do it by going for it and trying to do it. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. So I'm, I've taken all these personality tests as we do. And it turns out I'm an introvert and I get that. I understand it because I like to be alone when I create, I don't want a bunch of people around me disturbing me. Nothing's more frustrating than trying to, let's say, create something. And then someone comes in the room or into my studio or wherever and asks me, where's the remote? Like that is like, oh, now I have to start all over and get my train of thought back again. It's very frustrating, right? So that's that introverted part of me. Uh, but you can train yourself to be extroverted when you need to be for the sake of your career and your future self, right? So I guess my answer to you would be, if you have someone that's suffering from that, there are some really practical things you can do to train yourself to be extroverted in a moment that you need to be. Like you look at someone like Michael Shannon, who is the most introverted superstar you probably know. He really is like this. His characters aren't just like that. He, he looks at his feet. Like he's a, he's an introvert. Uh, Tarantino is an introvert, but they, ha they've developed a certain type of grit to, 
to be able to do the thing they, they love. Most comedians um, actually are an absolute wreck off the stage. They get on the stage, their blood pressure goes down. So this has been proven. Their blood pressure goes down. Their heart rate goes down. They're more comfortable on stage giving themselves to a bunch of people than the anxiety of giving themselves to one person. So if I had a high anxiety student that needed to network, one, can you develop the professional grit to, to come alive in the moment that you need to? But two, can I, can I find myself in networking situations where I get to be in front of a group instead of the intimacy of one person? A lot of times the anxiety comes from the fear of that intimacy and rejection from one person. It's so direct. It's a direct blow to you, right? Whereas in a group, you're very unlikely to be rejected by the entire group. So is there a way to go to somewhere and make sure you only get in conversations that are already happening? I've literally done this myself as an introvert, where it's like, I don't want to go talk to that one person. Look at all the people. What would, what would all the people think? Will they think I'm hitting on her? What was good, what's happening? Will he think I'm uh, trying to mooch off him or like whatever it might be? Instead, you just go to a group, quiet all those voices in your head, and you kind of ease into a group conversation that's already happening. I think that's a really uh, great tool uh, for overcoming anxiety in, in networking situations. Uh, try to find a group instead of tackling that person one-on-one. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that too, yes. Because I have, I'm working with a filmmaker and she has panic attacks. So I'm like, this is, she does this, she's full this, get this, blah, blah, blah. And it's lovely talking about other people because then it's not about me. Mm -hmm. And it might come out about, you know, who am I? But it's like, make it about somebody else, but find a one man. That's a tremendous suggestion. That's a tremendous suggestion. Because I've done that in my life. I bring my partner with me. Right. So he can go out and, and, you know, be Michael Jackson and I can be Tito. And it works. <laughs> it works out very nicely. I, uh, I think we had a question way back here. Yep. Mm -hmm. So... I'm going to answer my part, and then, I, Lee, I know you have some thoughts on this for sure as well. So uh, we did a feature film with um, Mike Vogel and Kate Upton, and we did Kate's last feature film. And they didn't necessarily need to know that um, we had distribution before they, they signed on, but they needed to know that they were part of a film that had a great script and, and, and that was going to make them look good and that they could, um, you know, and that they could sort of call their shot on in terms of how they were going to work within the film, like how much publicity are they going to have to do, like things like that. Now, um, let's say you wanted to go get like Tom Cruise. Well, that would be a situation anyway where uh, you would want to make sure you were in the black before principal photography. So in that case, what you do is you have to start with your director and producer. And let's say you're the director and writer, which is likely the case if it's an indie film. You need to really work hard to try to get a producer with a resume and then have them at the very least sign a letter of intent, right? Or a letter of commitment. So they're on board. 
then you need to go and spend the 15 grand and uh, get a great line producer and get a great casting director, right? Those two things. So now you're starting to develop a team that can um, go out and start to sell into markets before the film shoots, right? And with a good casting director, there's a chance you could get uh, a, a committed A-lister and then use that commitment, that letter, to go get funding from entertainment banks that put you in the black. Once you get that, then distributors will want to, to buy it in advance. And, and then now you've, now you've kind of settled distribution a little bit. You've settled funding. Now, I'll add the caveat of this. You might not want to settle on a distributor as an indie in advance unless it's like, you know, like, like a studio or a streamer that's going to produce it for you. So if you sell in advance to Netflix, they're going to go produce the movie for you and fund it. That's great. But if not, you want to, you want to kind of get the money first get your investors paid off, shoot the film, and then like Lee said earlier, maybe start a bidding war because the end product was so good and so aligned with the zeitgeist. So there's a couple of different routes to go, but in general, money doesn't like risk. And so money shows up when risk is lowered or mitigated completely. That's mitigated through having people they know can execute on a film and can prove it. If that's not you, you have to get people around you that can do it and try to form a team with them to make films over and over and over again. Banks and investors love long-term players that play long-term games together. They don't like mercenaries. Mercenaries equals risk. Long-term players that play long-term games together. That's why I'm a big believer in, if you're just starting out, work for free. Because then you can be on someone's team and make movies with them for the rest of your life. And you will get paid so much more later just by making the decision to do great work for free. I've, I've given the advice Lee before to go to a 48, go to your local, local 48, find the films that really are bad in the area that you're an expert. Let's say you're sound. There's nothing that tanks a sh uh, uh, indie film quicker than having bad sound. It's like, okay. 200%. Right. So, so it's like, oh, I can help that film. I can help that filmmaker. They had a good idea. They didn't know how to do sound. Introduce yourself with the 48. They'll be there because they'll want an award or whatever. Introduce yourself. Say, I will do your next film for free. And then just kill it. Like best sound they've ever had. You're getting that call every time forever. So that'd be, that's kind of my thought on that. Well, uh, and, I, and I'll Lee? just add, that's a very yeah. good answer to the question. 15 more minutes. Okay, great. Well, and we need to give away the art. Yeah. Uh, it, it's okay to say, you know, we don't have distribution yet, but maybe you would be attached, you know, or just kind of, if your script is good and they like the project, a lot of times, you know, it, it depends on the person and the situation. But I mean, don't be afraid to say, you know, we don't, the reason why they would ask you that is because they want to make sure if they volunteer their time at all, or even if they're paid, that the film goes somewhere. And it, it's important for people with a higher level name for that reason. But, you know, I mean, just be flexible about what your opportunity, you know, what you could do. 
Yeah, because it, it works the it works the same way uh, as it does in in your sort of social life and, and business, whatever. It's kind of like uh, uh, we'll always get asked to to be the first investor in, be the first investor in. Uh, and the reason they want that is because they know that if we invest, some other investor will be like, oh, those guys, uh, those guys are smart. If they, everybody's running to the next opportunity. And everybody knows that the opportunity is hidden under a rock. And they can't find it. Because if everybody can see it, it's not an opportunity. Um, I own a, a real estate business and a, as well and an investment business. And in real estate, for example, everyone thinks... You go buy this house that's on the market and then you like renovate it and sell it. But the people who really do it, the big secret, it's kind of an open secret is you never buy on the market. Everybody has that opportunity. You are patient and you find deals that are off the market so that you get incredible value for upside that's unbelievable. Right. So that's the same thing in film. It's like maybe you get someone to commit that isn't necessarily uh, an A-lister, but like is a B-pluser. But that B-pluser knows that A-lister. They have cocktails together. Maybe their kids go to the same school, just something like that. Then all of a sudden, a phone call is made and that person wants to in on your opportunity as well. And suddenly you have a cast. And it's funny in a real estate investment like that, you make a lot of your money on the front end. Mm -hmm. It's the same as film. If you're if you identify talent in a good project mm -hmm. first, you'll make the most on the whole thing. Yeah, I want to say in every feature film we 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 we've done, everyone in the cast knew each other, like just about. Like it was like you're doing it. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> well, and um, I wanted to give away some free art to everybody. Yeah, we need to give away free art. So I had a, one good question that I can ask from our panel for okay. everybody. So who remembers the name of the movie that you talked about in the very beginning by the female filmmaker with the female star? Ooh, that's a good question. That's going to be a tough one. That's really close. Fry is close, but incorrect. And it is just one what word. What is it? We got, we got over here. Hand up, hand it? down, hand you up. Got it? Faye. Faye is correct. Yay. All so right. So this is our first art, art winner. Will you describe this art, Lee? Too? Oh, yes. Um, okay. So this art was, um, I did, I'm, I'm an artist. I do oil painting and different things, but uh, I did recycled art and homage to Howard Finster, the movie that I did. So these are CDs that I turned into um, positive messages and it has, uh, it's abstract art, but it's, it's using, um, motifs from the Hopi Indians because I recently did a project with the Hopi Indians. <laughs> so it has a bunch of film tied into my art. <laughs> All right. What's the other question? I think the other question has to be, what are the four whys? Can anybody recite the four whys? You. Yeah, uh, so why should you be the one to make this? Right. Why you? Uh, why now? Yes. Uh, why film? Yeah. Why? Yep. That's why it. Me, the why, 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 why. Yeah. Why me? Yay. That, that's a winner. Winner, winner, that chicken dinner. Well, thank you guys it. for sitting with us. It's been fun to, to come here and be able to, you know, talk about film and creativity. It's great. Which question? It's called state of control.
and it's on, um, I think it's still on iTunes and um, Hulu, but it got restricted in some countries. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think it's here for sure. Yeah, that's, it's an awesome work. I was, well, I'm really proud of it just because I lived and I think it's a really compelling story, but it's hard hitting. Don't watch it thinking you're not going to be like, oh my God, <laughs> it's not one to watch. Like just on a Sunday, if you want to, you have to pay attention. On the scale of Homeland. <laughs> I mean, because it was real life, you know, it was just, uh, I mean, it was funny. There were black helicopters flying over my mom's house mm -hmm. when I went to visit for Thanksgiving and the neighbors called and it was mm -hmm. <laughs> surveillance because of the movie, I think. But it was like we had security experts and it ended up that um, I actually, I have an MBA in computer information systems. So I had a VPN router mm -hmm. that I set up. And I was able to capture the Chinese IP addresses and we took it to Google and they did an analysis as part of the film. But it was um, it was very intense, but I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that we were able to tell the story because it was really hard to finish because of the obstacles of having a government not want us to finish. Yeah, fortunately or unfortunately, my films are not that serious. But most uh, of my films were, were not that serious either. That was just one. Yeah, yeah. It, if, if you want to watch another version of you, we call it the perfect date night movie. No one's going to be triggered by anything in the film. You're just going to leave there <laughs> feeling really great. Like you're just going to, you're just going to leave there a believer in love and uh, boy, we need that. And then with adult interference, it can be triggering because it's an adult that curses a lot in front of a kid. Uh, but it is a, it's a comedy with a heart. It's a redemption story. And if you miss those comedies from the nineties that just didn't care and, and, uh, said what they wanted to say and, and followed people that seemed like they were more real and, and less political, you will absolutely love that as, as well. And, and all I will end is, uh, about a woman who, uh, uh goes in and out of these fugue states. So she can't tell the difference between reality and, and not reality. Um, so uh, following along with that is, is, a, is a fun ride and with a very big bang at the, <laughs> at the end uh, for, for horror lovers as well. And I should mention as we wrap up, uh, I'm incredibly transparent or I attempt to be. And so if I'm not as transparent as you'd like me to be, let me know and I will adjust and change. But I have business cards up here that I want everybody to get until I run out of them. Um, you are always welcome to reach out to me uh, at chris at bonsai.film, which is on these cards. Uh, please do reach out if you had questions and didn't get them asked today. Uh, you can listen to our podcast uh, called Make It. It's everywhere you listen to podcasts. And you can go to our website and reach out to us directly as well at www.bonsai.film. So it's B-O-N-S-A-I. Some people spell it with a Z. It's, it's an S. And um, I'm on Twitter at Flame in Your Heart, or you can just, uh, it's a triple entendre, uh, or uh, just search for, for Chris Barkley or Christopher Barkley, and I'll, I'll come right up. I'll be uh, the cool dude in the trench coat. Um, so that's, uh, I feel like I, so I might be older, but I was able to get Ava Lee filmed on every platform. So you can find me anywhere. Amazing. Like I got lucky Amazing. or maybe it's skill or yeah. I was just the first one. I follow you. Oh, good. I, I believe follow I follow you, too. you. Yeah. I think we follow <laughs> each other. A V A L E I G H F I L M. But I have some cards and stuff with it. So you guys can get those too, if you want until yep. they run out. Yeah. I, um, in, in, the version of the world that exists in my mind, 
all of us in this room could work together in the future. So I hope that's the case. I feel the same as him. Anyone can say, yep. oh, I was at the Knoxville Film Festival, which I personally love the Knoxville Film Festival because they accepted my first feature film to screen back in 2012. So I really appreciate um, everyone that has done the festival and I really am glad to be here. Yeah, shout out to Keith McDaniel, who is the epitome going. of an independent filmmaker. So, Well, thank you guys for coming out and supporting art and artists and film. It's really great to, that everybody can be in person this year. Yep. Of course. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.